Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of SIU Live. I'm your host, Emil Fristel. This week we'll focus on biotech, specifically in the context of collaborations between the United Kingdom and China, and how that's driving innovation in a new ecosystem. Su Nangjiang is the Minister Counselor for Science and Technology at the Chinese Embassy in the United Kingdom. He'll talk about his work on fostering a good policy environment for nurturing research collaboration between the United Kingdom and China. Here's Sunang Jiang. Thank you so much for joining. Yes, thank you. So if we look globally, it's clear today that there is a big boom in the biotech industry or you could say businesses based on deep science. Why is this happening now? Uh, I think uh, so with the development of uh, the, the sciences, so um, uh, for example, uh, usually uh, from the economical growth, is, um, for example in China it's uh, very much um, uh, the economic driven uh, uh, development, so for example uh, biotech get a uh, very fast development in China, and of course there is a lot of uh, invention in sciences, uh, in uh, in basic mm-hmm. sciences, especially in UK. It's a lot of uh, basic sciences um, invent a lot of things. So I think uh, we'll be very the boom in the biotech development. Yeah. Okay. So so you working as the the minister counselor from mm-hmm. China in the UK. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that China and the UK is a particularly good match? Yeah, I think uh, um, China is uh, developing very fast and also China is a big country. So almost mm-hmm. in every area is uh, can find uh, opportunity cooperate with the UK. UK is very strong, in, especially in some uh, basic research and also we think uh, including the biotech and um, Healthcare and a uh, lot of uh, basic research in UK is very strong. I think uh, can find a lot of uh, complementary uh, cooperation between uh, China and the UK. Uh, I just mentioned, uh, uh, for example, the the biotech and uh, uh, new material and also the renewable mm-hmm. energy and a lot of things that happen in China. Even uh, the big data AI is very very hot in in UK also in China. So. So there's of things and they can find a lot of fields to cooperate each other. Okay. So from a university perspective, if you mm-hmm. think about how different universities promote commercialization of the science that happens there, are there any particularly good models that comes to mind? Uh, yes. Uh, when I w- work in the uh, embassy in the UK, so. Uh, I noticed uh, different universities have a different uh, approach to uh, commercialize the, mm-hmm. this uh, research. I find um, the Oxford is is very good uh, example. So I know the uh, Oxford innovation uh, done a very good job on this because uh, I visited the Oxford innovation and uh, uh, find a lot of people follow up the. Uh, researchers. So, and uh, what happened in the different uh, team is very close to keep uh, to 
to know what happened in the research, and also um, uh, to help people, help the professor to commercialize their technology. And uh, I visited Oxford Innovation uh, several times, and uh, we found that this is a very good uh, uh, pattern to help researchers to commercialize their um, results, to help them, to train them and, uh, in different ways. Mm -hmm. So what specific features about this model is it that you think work well? Yeah, I know this model like a kind of a platform and uh, including uh, researchers and also of course including some research achievements mm -hmm. and also the patterns and also uh, can link with um, uh, financial uh, investment and also the Link with the VC and uh, the seeds fund in a uh, different way to help them. Uh, also, and uh, UK is uh, uh, did a lot of this, like uh, Innovative UK, different funding organization to help this uh, startup mm -hmm. company. Mm -hmm. Okay, and is there anything the universities could do to better support commercialization for young scientists specifically? Yeah, and I think, uh, for example, uh, hold some uh, competition. Uh, it's a very good way, yeah. and uh, like uh, entrepreneurial and innovation competition. Uh, so uh, this is very good to to um, let uh, the students and the young students to realize their dream. And uh, because of the, especially and uh, between China and the UK, we already I already see uh, several a lot of this kind of uh, innovation and uh, entrepreneurship mm -hmm. competition. I think I think this uh, may be the best way. So you you say mm -hmm. one good way would be to have uh -huh. competitions for yeah. the young researchers. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. What what type of competitions are you thinking of? Uh, <coughs> for example, uh, usually the the first uh, they of course need a very organized uh, this kind of competition and let uh, a lot of uh, students to know this kind of competition. Also, mm -hmm. uh, do some training and, uh, to these uh, this young uh, students, to train and find a mentor. And um, these are several steps. Yeah, first, let them know and uh, also the, get the training and find a mentor to these uh, the students. Okay, yeah. so on the topic of mentoring, if you could give a piece of advice to a young student just finishing his or her graduate, what would it be? Uh, I think uh, as a young student, uh, sh should be more uh, innovative and uh, uh, can uh, s think in the freely. <laughs> yeah, and um, I mean they can uh, can think everything. Yeah, because uh, the the scientists in the innovation to in this uh, need to encourage to uh, think in. Uh, no limitation and um, find a new idea, the new products uh, is um, not so many uh, limitations for the young people. I, I think this should be encouraged young people to think in, uh, uh, innovatively and also can, uh, can find some new invention and the new uh, products. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is, is this innovation thinking something you think there is enough focus on in the universities? Or is there room for improvement? So your one piece of advice would be mm -hmm. think more innovatively. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's enough focus to foster that type of mindset? 
from my pers personal view, it should be uh, more uh, uh, not uh, not only to the to the to read the textbook and also mm -hmm. if you can do some research work, it will be better and um, and uh, from the very beginning to involve the, some uh, research projects and uh, uh, even initiative by students and also um, maybe to join right. the, some team to attend this uh, research program. Okay, so from a, a more capital financial perspective, there is a huge boom in the biotech or the, the deep science business industry today. We've previously had similar booms in other industries and they turned out to be bubbles that births. Mm -hmm. Do you have similar concerns for this sector? Uh, uh, and, and if it's different, why? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yes, in, in some uh, extent, uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, because sometimes uh, one technology is very hot and uh, maybe mm -hmm. um, they need, a, need a more um, on the earth, I mean, uh, do some research and more, not just uh, the ideas and uh, it should be uh, solved some problem. So uh, sometimes the investor is more uh, pursue. I mean, uh, some fashion <laughs> idea. Yeah, but sometimes yeah. maybe they don't know what really happened. And so, if you look forward the next ten, twenty years within this sector, mm. what are the the major development or trends that you think might happen? So, so in the biotech industry or in mm -hmm. in the the sector of businesses that are driven by deep science, mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, of course the the basic research, basic sciences is very important because of this kind of uh, resources, mm -hmm. and uh, of course uh, if we look uh, long run and um, especially some topics uh, is uh, related uh, with uh, ordinary people life will be. I think will be very important, like healthcare and uh, and uh, use high tech to 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 help people get a more um, good life. Yeah. Okay. F for the ordinary people. Yeah. Finally, thank you very much for joining. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Dave Match is the former vice president in chemistry and research at Sension and a co-founder of Cogent Bioscience. He's the vice president of the research service division at Wuxi Aptech. And he'll talk about the role of contract research organizations in the future biotech ecosystem. Here's Dave Match. All right, Dave. Okay. Thank you very much for being here. You're very welcome. This is going to be bit oncological, I reckon, but I want to begin with, if, if you look out today, there's a big boom happening in the biotech industry, in the industry driven by deep science-based startups. Why do you think that is, it's happening now? There, there's, a, there's a massive increase, uh, and I spoke a little bit about this in my presentation, in the availability of the, the ecosystem to support early stage startups. Uh, and so, you know, we see statistics every year about how much money goes into startup companies and how many startup companies are created in, in each part of the world. 
Um, there are a number of drivers for that. Part of it is the access to capital uh, and an increasing acceptance of the, the risks involved, but the potential returns involved in investing in very early stage technology companies. And it's not just in life sciences, it's in many other technology areas as well. Um, but there's also a drive or a, a shift from larger organizations to outsource the risk taking involved in mm. early drug early discovery generally but drug discovery in particular um, but also to outsource their innovation bigger organization you know it's a well recognized fact that it's very difficult to foster a culture a true of true creativity in a large organization uh, the ideas that you get when you mix people of different disciplines or different backgrounds is actually very hard to drive that in a big organization where people live in different departments or different buildings or different countries potentially uh, whereas in smaller organizations everybody's shoved in together uh, you have people from different backgrounds different technical skills different uh, training backgrounds all working next to each other in the same mm. organization all experiencing the pressures that, that organization has but also all experiencing the, the excitement of doing something different and innovative and creative. Uh, and that tends to be a very, um, very wealthy um, culture for generating ideas and generating innovation. And I think that's become very well recognized by big organizations and by investors as, uh, as being creative and providing a, a source of later stage products and ideas that larger organizations can then adopt and drive towards the market and commercialization. Does that answer your question? Yeah, thanks. Okay. So you you have quite a lot of experience with the Chinese market and I was wondering whether you can elaborate a bit on on what's happening there in terms of the change in relations, the um, the, the, the capital structure we've seen there. Mm -hmm. So obviously the, the um, government in China recognizes a number of different things um, in the healthcare area. It recognizes the need to make it easier for Western companies to to trade in China, to bring their medicines into China and to make their medicines available to the, the, the population in China. Um, but they also recognize the need to invest in domestic innovation, domestic companies and uh, to provide a framework for those companies to, to grow and flourish uh, and to create an ecosystem that you would think uh, was aimed eventually at being some kind of mimetic of the, uh, the ecosystem in the US where, or, or Europe for that matter, where it's perfectly feasible to start a small company with a little bit of capital from, from government sources or from venture sources uh, and to then grow that company as it becomes successful, as it demonstrates that its ideas are, are worthy and uh, potentially impactful or valuable. Can, can you give some specific examples on how that's happening, government sure. policies? Sure, I mean at the at the later stages um, there are very clear changes in the regulatory involvement, uh, regulatory environment um, that the CFDA have put in place to make it easier for Western companies to bring products into China and for Western companies to collaborate with Chinese um, inventors and Chinese manufacturers. So, so that's a very clear objective of the, the CFDA. 
to foster those kind of collaborations. Um, but there's also changes and um, you know, much greater availability of capital um, and infrastructure in the form of investment in buildings, making buildings and people available to early stage companies to, uh, to house them, to incubate them uh, and to allow them to you know, look at creative ideas without needing to invest massively in, um, in infrastructure to, uh, to actually investigate those ideas. Okay, so in terms of ecosystems and setting up incubators and infrastructures, are there specific hotspots in China? So, um, um, you, there. Where are those hotspots? Yeah, I mean, there are there are a number of hotspots, um, but there are an ever increasing number of, of mm. hotspots according to the local government's attitude to investment and to, you know, thinking about what kind of industries they want to particularly develop in their their region obviously if you are you know, part of the thinking as to where those hotspots are relates to how those products and how those companies will develop on a on an international stage so there is a thinking um, that relates to accessibility um, relates to how um, accepting the local culture would be for Western companies going there um, to partner with new companies in, in that environment. So the tendency is for you know, the larger, the tier one cities mm -hmm. to have the, um, the hotspots that are heavily invested in and are probably directed more towards um, creating companies that will stand on, on an international stage. Okay, so to change gears a bit, I was very curious about your sort of personal journey. You have a background in uh, medicinal chemistry, mm -hmm. but it seems like you've throughout your work in academia, you've had a lot to do with both big farmers and with several different startups. When did did that interest of translation or the mm -hmm. business side of science first spark in you? Yeah, that's a good question. It's um you know, I could have pursued a purely scientific career. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, my, my career started in a big pharma company and had a great time working in early stage drug discovery in big pharma. Um, but then I took the choice to move into academia uh, and that gave me a different suite of opportunities. Uh, and it led me to, to see, as many others have seen, that there are many great ideas in academia, um, in, in universities around the world, that don't see the necessary um, focus on translation to demonstrate the how how important those uh, those discoveries are and how impactful they mm. could be. So that led me to to think a little bit about how I could change that, um, how I could help set companies up based on university assets, how I could um, add value to them or take them to some critical proof of concept point to uh, to demonstrate that they were potentially impactful. And so at UCL, that, that was a big part of my job, understanding which, uh, which observations, which assets, which discoveries um, could become tractable outside of the university and potentially have an impact on healthcare. Uh, and then incubating them within the, the university to enable that. And that, you know, naturally that leads you to get involved with how you want to fund those companies, those projects, 
how you're going to grow them, uh, in many cases needing to grow them outside of the university environment so that they could actually build and become you know, organisations in their own right. So then you get involved in you know, many aspects of funding and building companies that were new to me. Uh, it wasn't part of my role in Big Pharma. Yeah, so it, was, it sort of just naturally developed. Yeah, so, and you know, it, it's interesting, you know, getting exposure to these other aspects of, you know, that are related to what we do in life sciences. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're not pigeonholed, but if you're focused on a particular activity in a large organization, you very rarely get the opportunity to, to play with all these other, uh, sure. other tasks. So are there, you, you mentioned translation from the university perspective, actually getting your science out in the world. Yeah. Are there, when you think about universities or governments, are there any particular good examples that come to mind where that's working? So, I mean, yes, there are, there are many good examples um, all around the world. Uh, good examples in the UK. I mean, obviously, I have uh, you know some involvement in UCL and also in Imperial, and I think they've mm. been doing a great job. But also Oxford and Cambridge have done a great job in setting setting up and supporting really very very impactful companies um, that have been based on university technologies or university ideas or observations. Um, and the same is true around the world. I can go to you know obviously MIT, Harvard. Um, Rockefeller in New York and many many other US and increasingly Chinese universities that are able to do this that recognize their assets uh, and have built the infrastructure to develop them. Okay there may be a different way to phrase the question the the people who get it right what is that they have in common or, or, or why is it working? So I think what they have in common is, is a basic um, entrepreneurial understanding that what they have is uh, potentially impactful, potentially valuable, uh, and the ability to communicate that. You know, it's it's not enough to simply have a deep understanding of the science. You need to be able to convey that to uh, to people who almost always will not have such a deep understanding of the science, but you need to convince them of, of the value of the uh, validity. Of, so I, are you thinking about the general public or about VC so investors? So you know, they're at the initial level, potential investors, but if you can do it at the level of public interactions, then that's even more powerful because, you know, it generates uh, a lot more uh, broader enthusiasm for, for what you're doing. And, you know, the, the true serial entrepreneurs in universities, these are people who can go out and convey complex ideas and their impact to any kind of audience um, and still do it in a very you know, clear and understandable way. These are the people that have big impact mm-hmm. on what we do. So touching on your role today, you're a VP of research in Wuxitech. Mm-hmm. And as I understand it, Wuxitech is a contract research organization. Correct. Could you elaborate a bit on what the type of work is that Sure these type of organizations are doing and where they fit in the drug development pipeline. Yeah. So contract research organizations in drug discovery are uh, really now an an integral and an essential part of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the reason for this is that increasingly early stage innovation 
development, translation, whatever you want to call it, the development of ideas towards products that takes place in small, often semi-virtual organizations. Those organizations have uh, you know, often a very high technical skill set that they bring to bear on a particular problem. But in order to demonstrate that their um, solution to that problem is the right solution, then they need to do other pieces of work to generate a data set that they can present to investors or to present to potential pharma clients. So to, to put that in the context of a simple example, you know, if, uh, if you're a, a pharmacologist sitting in Oxford University and you make what you think is a very crucial observation for a particular protein that has a role in a disease, let's say it's cancer, uh, and you think, well, that's, that's going to be a, a very high impact target for drug discovery in the oncology area. How do I convince people to, um, to take this on as a concept? How do I demonstrate um, that what I've discovered really has potential healthcare um, impact? And there's a whole host of activities that you need to build around the original idea in order to demonstrate that. It might involve medicinal chemistry, it might involve pharmacokinetics, it might involve in vitro or in vivo demonstration of the value of your observation. To carry out all those experiments requires quite a lot of infrastructure, a lot of skill sets that are not present in the group that had the original idea. So they can either build those capabilities or they can outsource those experiments to an organization that already has the capabilities. And more and more Small companies choose to outsource these activities. It's far more efficient, far more cost-effective, uh, and usually far, far quicker. And so organizations like Wuji Aptek and many other contract research companies have built up around providing that service. So we solve the problem, how do I get from idea A to product B as efficiently and as cost-effectively as possible? And the answer to that question is you use a contract research organization to fill in the gaps around your own skills and technologies. Okay, so it sounds like to me, I'm trying to, to fit in the drug development pipeline and these, these CROs, they usually come after the academic work that has been done and are not that much involved in, say, discovering the targets. So that's, generically, that, that would be true. In the majority of cases, um, companies that work with CROs have already done some basic science that says this is the target, this is the area of interest. Now that is not necessarily the case uh, and of course as our understanding of the genomics uh, basis of disease, the genetic basis of disease increases then sometimes the question that people come to us with is I have these cells from uh, patients with the disease and I'd like to understand what is driving their disease. And we can use genetic um, tools to, to understand that. And that is the process through which we identify the target that becomes the starting point of a drug discovery program. Okay, and say in, in, in that last case, a researcher comes to you with a deceased cell and you help them figure out what's wrong. How does the IP work in that case? So contract research organizations um, pretty much invariably work on the basis that the client owns the intellectual property. Okay. Uh, and, and we work very much on that basis. 
whatever somebody, whatever question somebody comes to us to solve, no matter how much thought or technology we put into the process of answering that question, the intellectual property always belongs to the client. Okay, that's really interesting. I was thinking about the the contract research organizations and how how much of that is possible due to say differences in resources or salaries in different countries. So so Wuxi Tech is largely based in China, as is many other contract research organizations. Mm-hmm. How how big a part of what you're doing is possible due to the differences in the more developed countries where yeah, a lot of, sure. of the drugs are initially developed and sold and the uh, what's going on in the Chinese side. Yeah. So it, it's an interesting question and it's it's also a, a dynamic situation. Um, it would be fair to say that when Wuji was first established, a big part of the rationale was to leverage a lower cost base in China mm-hmm. um, and to use that to provide services to Western companies. Uh, and the company grew up on that that premise. But of course, as your organization becomes bigger, as its range of services and the contribution it makes becomes larger, then um, that becomes less of a factor in which companies choose to come and work with you. You have genuine technological or um, you know other capability advantages over smaller organizations that still make you the uh, the partner of choice. And of course, while that's been happening over the last 15 years, there's been you know huge changes in um, prosperity in China um, that has started to normalize cost bases between China and the Western world uh, and erode some of that cost advantage that we might otherwise have had. But we've been fortunate to be able to build a, a large company and to have a platform that's very attractive to Western companies without needing um, a substantial cost advantage to make it attractive. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so a final question on that note. There was a recent statistics that the R&D spending in China is going to, I think it was 2020, to reach the number one in the world. Mm-hmm. So so China is no longer just producing cheap toys. They're becoming a leading research country. They're, sure. I think they're graduating 40% of the STEM students in the world. Yeah. Um, can, can you elaborate a bit on on what's happening in that area? What you think that will mean in terms of the the CRO business? What are what are sure. going to happen in your area? So, you know, if we look at where Europe and the US is today, there are many many startup companies, and there's a very clear ecosystem and a pathway for those companies to get funding to grow. Um, potentially to exit through IPO or acquisition or partnering uh, and that process is process is pretty well understood there are options along the way but usually you know you can decide on a pathway and you can build a company based on those choices right now China is not quite at that position the ecosystem is not there but it is changing dramatically to become more aligned and to build an ecosystem that will allow small biotech companies or academic groups with ideas to build small biotech companies and to fund those ideas and to grow them in exactly the same way as we do elsewhere in the world. So what you're seeing crudely is uh, the start of an alignment of uh, how the process works in China 
compared to the way it works elsewhere in the world. Uh, a maturing, if you like. So it's becoming more globalized and homogeneous. So, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily use the word homogeneous in the sense that, you know, Chinese universities uh, and institutes have a, a wealth of, of great ideas and some of those ideas are in different areas of research to, to the rest of the world. So I think there's also going to be a very positive contribution in terms of uh, new technologies, new drug discovery ideas. It's not simply a case of making the worldwide platform much bigger. It's a case of bringing a pool of fresh new ideas, fresh new talent, new thinking or different ways of thinking about how we do this. Uh, and that can only be very refreshing for the whole industry. Thank you very much for joining, Dave. You're very welcome. Thank you.